Welcome to Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast. Not a podcast, the podcast. Where we discuss everything from hauntings and murders to the evil underbelly of Tinseltown. Our hosts today are Patrick, Colleen, that's me, and Tia. I think Tia is laughing at me, that's Tia. Um, and Jameson. <laughs> Never mind, Adam Sandler is a guest host today. Hello, everybody. Uh, what's up, man? How, how are you? He was doing Carrie, if you were... Yeah, thank you. I was doing Carrie, not not Adam Sandler. I know, However, but, one but, it, same, but right? you did sound like Adam Sandler doing <laughs> And And he does that, do so that, I remember. Sounds like a horrible movie, Adam Sandler as Carrie. <laughs> as, as Carrie? Carrie? <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was going to be like the mom, at least, or something. Oh, my God. Oh. No, I'm doing well, man. Uh... It, it sounds, or it looks like there's gonna be a thunderstorm like right over my head here, so I'm excited to see if there's any lightning or anything as I tell my my story. But we'll see. I was about to say, yeah, it's that that's the background noise that we're okay with. Yeah, right. Yeah. Now, now my grumbling stomach. Yeah, there fuck that. Yeah, and don't and don't be trying to <laughs> blame it the other way. <laughs> Your stomach, right? <laughs> it was thunder. I swear to God. That was definitely a fart, Jameson. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, I'm actually very excited about this one today, um, and I believe, I'm, I'm going last, um, who, who's going first? Jameson's going I'll first. I'll go first. Okay, alright, but you guys yeah, don't I'll want to roll dice. And, uh, I believe last week you gave me the subject of Marilyn, a uh, uh, one Miss Marilyn Monroe. Ooh. Uh, the sexy and beautiful and talented Marilyn Monroe. Oh, by the way, I just realized I, I have to go upstairs and dig around my dad's attic. I realized that as I was doing my research here that um, she was in the first um, issue of Playboy. Yeah. And I was down in um, Florida one time and looking through an antique store and somebody had a framed uh, picture of her uh, from that Playboy issue and I bought it for my dad and he's uh, he's said he will he will bequeath it to me. Ooh. <laughs> That's awesome. So, That's cool. I'll have to send you a shot of it. It's really cool. It's very vintage looking, very sexy. Um, she's totally naked in it, and it's hot. But uh, you know, it's got it's all it's all worn and you know beat up, so it's got that vintage look. So it's pretty it's pretty awesome. Nice, that's fucking cool. And I did not realize that it was the first issue of Playboy that she was in. That's pretty cool. Yeah, as well. that's a that's a trip. Yeah. yeah. I mean, of all the people I, I remember... that get naked on your first issue, I think Marilyn Monroe is definitely top three if you can get it. I remember when we were doing that yeah episode, like Jane Mansfield, the re- she did Playboy because. That's funny. Yeah, I mean, we did talk about her doing nude photos and things like that. So, I mean, it makes sense that uh, uh, you know, the two of them would be involved with Playboy because I was the big, the big one at the time, you know, the big magazine to be in. Yeah, right. So, you would ask me to do a little, uh, a little background check on, uh, on, on more, let's like focusing more on the conspiracy theories around how she died. Um, and that was a lot, that was interesting, you know, I mean, obviously I think a lot of people know of her filmography and, and, you know, the status that she kind of received in Hollywood and in just the public's eye, obviously she was a very, uh, central character to a lot of people as far as just popularity and glamour and movie stardom was concerned that she was kind of the epitome of that, you know? Um, I didn't realize it, but she was actually born and, and died in LA. Um, she was raised in LA. And uh, she was actually an orphan. Her family gave her up, I guess. Um, but uh, uh, she was she went by Norma Jean Mortensen, uh, which most people know Norma Jean, but uh, I didn't realize it was spelled J E A N E. Hmm. So I didn't realize it. Almost like just obviously a little bit of a different spelling. But um, 
there's a heavy metal band called Norma Jean that spells it the other way. So oh. I thought they were doing her honor, and I guess maybe not. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she was born um, June uh, June twenty. Uh, sorry, excuse me, June first, nineteen twenty six. Um, and you know, became the movie star that she is, uh, uh, got into film. She was, uh, discovered, uh, selling, gosh, I forget what it was. She was selling something, uh, and she was discovered and she started, uh, a very uh, popular, um, run of pinup shots. She's doing a lot of pinup work. Uh, got a, got a couple of, uh, contracts through movie theater or for uh, through movie studios and you know came up basically and and hit her stardom didn't feel like she was getting paid a lot of money so she split off and started her own uh production company uh finally getting hired on by another a studio and she was getting paid more money and kind of had that that um stardom of uh, that she was looking for that that notoriety mm-hmm. uh Obviously, everyone knows that she uh, she did she has died. Uh, she died on August fourth, nineteen sixty two, um, and she was found in in bed, uh, found in her bedroom, uh, in bed naked, uh, clutching the telephone, and uh, some some empty pill bottles by the side. So it was pretty pretty classic scene as far as uh, you know the dramatic uh, suicide on the bed with the pills is concerned, I guess. I don't mean to make that sound insensitive. No, no. That, um, I mean that does like clutching the phone, yeah, obviously trying like, to either call for help or. I mean, right. I hate to go like OJ on it, but it's also like that's really con, like, uh, convenient. Yeah, I mean, it could be, it could look a little staged, and yeah. and I think that the reason that they didn't think it was staged is because they had a lot of uh, when the when the police went to inve- uh, to kind of investigating to kind of get, you know, what people had to say, uh, namely people like her psychiatrist or, uh, her, uh, housekeeper, things like this. She had apparently had a reputation of doing this where she would take pills over, not necessarily overdose, but she would take pills and then would make a phone call. And, uh, generally she, there was somebody there to come and rescue her, to save her. Uh, so, the reason that they ruled it a suicide is because of that, that they, they, she had done this in the past. It had been an issue. She did have a known problem with drugs and alcohol. And the reason they didn't think it was a, an accidental overdose is because of the amount of pills that she took. Um, she basically went to f- refill her prescription the day before she died. So she had a brand new bottle and the, you know, the coroner was like, dude, she took way too many what, pills. What were the pills? <laughs> uh, you know, you in order for this to be an accident. So, what what were the pills? Did did you say that already? Yeah, it was barbiturates. Uh, it oh, was an arbi- oh, okay. a, a barbiturate overdose. Um, she had a couple. I, I think it was one or two pills, but she had been prescribed this by her uh, psychiatrist to help her um, with with stress and with anxiety. Um, there seems to be a lot of. Uh, she was having trouble with sleeping, and she felt that uh, she was she was getting kind of paranoid. Um, because she felt that people were kind of after her. So there was a lot of things that were going on in her life at the time that seemed to kind of culminate into this, like, nervous breakdown, taking drugs, you know, combined with with depression and, you know, probably isolation because she was so huge. Yeah. Uh, You know, she couldn't let personal people in her life. She'd been married, I think, three times. I know Mm -hmm. twice she was married to Arthur Miller and uh, Joe, Joe DiMaggio. Um, Who else? Who's the other guy? So, wait, am I saying that right? Is it Joe DiMaggio? Joe DiMaggio, yeah. Yeah, yeah Joe DiMaggio. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know what I mean? So she had this major public life, obviously. She was very famous. She was one of the biggest banking stars in the world. She, had, you know, her movies made tons of money. Um, but by, what, 1961, her last film was called, her last completed film was called The Misfits. Um, she basically, that's kind of when she started getting really upset about, like, uh, the, the payment and the, and the way that she was being billed and stuff. She's just like, you know, you're not paying me what I'm worth, basically, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, she was hired for a movie called Something's Gotta Give, but the product, but the uh, studio fired her, and they publicly were blaming her. They're putting it all on her, saying that she's difficult to work with, and it's completely her fault. And they renegotiated, and she went back into filming, and then that was just kind of the end of it. Obviously, she she died before that was that was uh, she could film the rest of that. So, mm. uh, as as it stands, The Misfits are is the last completed film of Marilyn's career. Crazy. So, wow, yeah. so yeah. So, you know, she dies, um, and really, the the coroner doesn't. The coroner does his his thing. Um, doesn't find any signs of foul play or anything like that, other than the fact that she just downed all these bottles of pills. Um, and it's ruled a, it's ruled a probable suicide, not a definite, but a probable suicide. Mm-hmm. And really, nobody thinks anything of this. I mean, this is nineteen sixty. What, 1962 uh and and not for a really long time does anybody think of anything of it and um out of the blue somebody comes out and says well hey you know doesn't it seem kind of weird and he starts to bring up all these kind of facts and so it gets into the public thought that basically maybe there is something to this maybe there is uh uh somebody who's uh, or maybe there is some somebody who tried to murder her and have it covered up Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of where our story begins as far as, uh, uh, all the conspiracy theories that go along with Marilyn killing herself. So the biggest conspiracy and one that seems to me that would be, would be relatively, uh, plausible would be that the Kennedys did it. Okay. Right. Now yeah. everybody knows about the famous happy birthday, <laughs> Mr. President. Actually, you know, I'm, I'm not really which, familiar. Could you do the entire song? I could do it with dress on if you like. Please oh, do. Oh man, just so the listeners know, Jameson is now. Changing. Please do. My birthday's coming up in a couple months. Please do. <laughs> I, will, I will go full drag and do it to it. Awesome. No, uh, as long as as long as Patrick's cool with it, and that's yeah, fine. I don't yeah, care how uncomfortable I, it makes Tia, but I as long as it because <laughs> it will be mighty uncomfortable. <laughs> so basically, um. You know, everyone knows that she sang for him. She sang she sang that song for him on his 45th birthday at Madison Square Garden, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, she, a lot of people speculated that she was having an affair with with uh, uh, John Kennedy. And then a lot of people started speculating that she was also kind of messing around with, with his brother, Robert Kennedy. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so both of those guys are involved with her, okay? Um. Whether or not they're sleeping together, that's that's never been proven or anything like that, but always been speculated. Um, but it seems that the more she hung out with these guys and the more she was in this circle of people, that she potentially overheard things or was involved in conversations of stuff that she she should not have been privy to. Uh, you know, whether it was military secrets or people that were you know talking about secrets about other you know politicians or whatever. She supposedly she was getting a lot of dirt and had a quote unquote little red book that she was keeping all of this information inside of. Okay. Hmm. 
So there's a lot of conspiracies as to which of the Kennedys wanted to have her killed and, you know, why would, why, you know, one Kennedy was, uh, you know, he was covering up secrets because obviously he didn't want his wife to know. And then, uh, was it, well, because this other guy was, he, you know, he told her these secrets. So there was a lot of just, uh, uh, just secrets that supposedly were being told to her and that she knew. Um, if you've ever heard of the name Peter Lawford, he was one of the Rat Packers. Mm-hmm. Um, he mm-hmm. was in, he was, uh, rel- well, he was, he was, um, family in law with the Kennedys. Uh, I think his sister married one of the brothers or something. Um, but Peter Lawford was somehow involved in this. And, and, and as it goes, is that like, uh, somebody was bugging the house and he heard all three of them arguing with each other. And then there was a loud bang uh, right around the time that she supposedly died. But then again, there was no foul play involved with when, when the uh, autopsy was performed. So, you yeah. know what I mean? So there's a lot of conflicting things, but plausible things that she could have been killed for by the Kennedys. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that, that's, that's the biggest conspiracy is that the Kennedys did it. Now, obviously did the Kennedys physically do it? Did they, were they the ones that like, you know, choked her or gave her all the drugs or whatever? Probably not. Um, there was some speculation as to whether he was that uh, Robert Kennedy was actually in California when she died. A lot of people said that they saw him there, but he denied it and said he was in San Francisco. So, you know, there's a lot of speculation there. Crazy. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Kind of piggybacks into speculate or into uh, uh, conspiracy number two. Okay, which is the mafia did it. Now this kind of splits into two ways. One one theory is that the Kennedys hired. Uh, Jimmy Hoffa to take care of her and have her taken out uh, because of um, again because of secrets or for whatever they hired Jimmy Hoffa. Uh. Um, other people think that there was another guy named Boss uh, Sam Giannaka Giancana Giancana sorry Boss <laughs> Sam Giancana <laughs> Italian huh. <laughs> Let's just call him Boss Sam, shall we? Yeah, yeah. you know they didn't um, say his full name for sure. <laughs> so Boss Sam and or Jimmy Hoffa supposedly maybe hired uh, hired uh, somebody to like had one of their men kill him. So that story comes from the fact that a gentleman named Bernard Spindell, who is a professional wiretapper, had tapped her house, and that's when he heard the phone call about the the. Um, uh, the fighting and the and the loud bang there, um, but apparently also mm. she was having an affair with a guy named Johnny Roselli, who was one of uh, Boss Sam's guys, and Boss Sam wanted her dead because of course Johnny was yapping his mouth to her, and so she had uh, secrets that was quote that could quote expose his operations. Oh. Okay, so. Huh. It seems to me that basically she was sleeping with a lot of people <laughs> and she had a lot of dirt on a lot of these people and a lot of people wanted her dead. Um, oh, let me see wow. here. So <sighs> apparently also the other theory is that um, the, the boss Sam felt that she uh, – oh, sorry. Okay, let me start that over again. Boss Sam apparently got her her first contract – in exchange for information on dirt on people in Hollywood that he could use against people in Hollywood. She had all this information and that was another reason why he wanted her supposedly gone because of this whole like, uh, 
deal that they had worked out. All right. Uh, so, okay, you know, but that story ends, and this is a little less plausible. Apparently that story ends is uh, he's, okay, a, a gentleman named Dar, uh, Darwin Porter, who wrote a book called Maryland at Rainbow's End, thinks that uh, Boss Sam sent in five hitmen who used chloroform on, uh, on Marilyn, knocked her out, stripped her of her clothes, and then gave her a barbiturate enema. Holy oh, my shit. God. To cover up the story, you know, to make it look like that yeah. she had done these drugs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's, so there's, that, there's that theory. <laughs> oh my god. So obviously that's a little bit more ridiculous. Um, you're kind of out there with that one. You're stretching the limits on that one, in yeah. my opinion. Um, let's go to area. Let's go to conspiracy number three. Conspiracy number three is a little bit more fun. She was killed because she knew information about Area 51. Uh, I've heard this one. I was uh, going to ask about that if I didn't hear right. it. Nice, nice. Yeah, so, now, apparently this wasn't by the Kennedys. This was actually done by the CIA. Now, apparently, um, let's see here. Apparently, about two days before uh, she was killed, uh, the CIA had redacted a statement saying, uh, or not a statement, but redacted a, a, a letter or a transcript that uh, kind of said something about her uh, being told information about Area 51 by John F. Kennedy during quote-unquote pillow talk. Um, and so she might have learned uh, something about that, and so the CIA wanted her snuffed out because she was supposedly uh, threatening to have a press conference about knowing information about that. Huh. Yeah. So, uh, so, but then that, that again, that that CIA document has never been. That was like a that was a classified document, so nobody can, you know, like prove it. I guess yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. never been released. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, all right, and then so let's go to the final the final uh, conspiracy. And the final conspiracy is that she's actually still alive. Okay. Oh. And. Uh, like a Elvis. gentleman named uh, John Alexander uh, Baker wrote Marilyn Monroe alive in 1984, question mark. Um, he feels, or his, his angle is that uh, her psychiatrist um, staged her death. And then he actually took her up to Canada, into New Brunswick, and committed her into a mental institution. What? What? That's crazy. Uh, yeah. All right. So now he says this because he was actually driving in Canada one day in 1984 and picked up a woman uh, who claimed to be Marilyn. And I guess that she – they talked for a while and he said that she, she resembled her and that she sounded like her. But apparently he said she also had the same singing voice, which makes me believe that uh, he asked her to sing her song or something, and she did. Um but as he described her, she looked homeless, frightened, and was a paranoid schizophrenic. Oh, so he says, wow. I 99% believe her. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously there's the, those are the four biggest conspiracies. There's, there's other rabbit holes you can go down to. But, uh, I mean, it definitely basically sounds – definitely. It, 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 it sounded to me at least that she, because of her place in pop culture and because of her sex, her sexual – I, you know, like because she was such a sexual icon, uh, because she was so huge, she was able to get into a lot of places that, you know, these powerful men were at. And because of that, I yeah. think that they probably like to show off to her. 
and they like to kind of flex their muscles and and she heard a lot of stuff um so as far as the conspiracy theories are concerned that would make very plausible sense that either the mob or the kennedys or combined wanted her dead because of all these secrets that she held yeah right wow i mean on the other hand do you look at it as uh you know she was just a woman who was really messed up by the end of her career and was just kind of lost in this fog of you know confusion and depression and took these pills and you know and really did go for that call to get help and just was too late and um you know didn't make it you know yeah and especially because she was like a first of her kind you know like she like they're the whole like blonde bombshell thing you know she kind of exploded and like no one's really equipped to handle that much attention but not the attention that she wanted she wanted to be taken seriously but they really almost never did take her seriously but i feel like this happens yeah with like a lot of actress actresses unfortunately well it's funny you say that because they did say something about that she basically, they put her in two movies in a row, which were very popular, but they made her to be a dumb blonde, and she really didn't want to have that that negativity attached to her. So she went and yeah. she got like very like like I forget what the term was, but like you know very deep acting, like very serious deep acting. Yeah, classes. she was, didn't she study with like the group theater or like Lee Strasberg or something? Yeah, I like, didn't his, see, they his didn't wife see names. was they were like... just like that. She really was like you know I don't want to be typecast this way, so I'm really going to take this seriously and. You know, she was trying to, you know, to probably to be more on the award level of acting as opposed to just a famous yeah. actress. She was really good, too. Yeah. You know? I've yeah. never really seen any movies with her before. I, I don't, I'm not really the la- the huge last into one I saw old, old with movies, her, but. Um, yeah. I saw The Misfits. I mean, I've seen The Misfits. Yeah, The Misfits was She's, super tragic. It's really sad. Especially knowing that that was, like, the last one, right? Yeah, and it's kind of right. about how men kind of treat women very poorly it's really depressing but she's so good in it man like yeah. i honestly was like kind of like i don't know it's like the first time you watch james dean or something you know you're kind of like oh this or like is, him this and, is what people are him in east of eden <laughs> right and yeah you're like yeah heartbroken you, yeah it's just like yeah you can tell there's a lot of truth in the acting yeah you know and, the, and, Mar- and maryland at that time obviously was not in the good headspace yeah um on the just to tag tag onto that i was uh waiting for like like the craziest conspiracy i ever heard was i went to go see this guy talk um i can't remember his name offhand but now he's like on ancient aliens and stuff but oh, I saw, Giorgio Sucolos? no not Giorgio oh. Sucolos. um uh-huh. yeah i wish it was <laughs> um but um we went and saw him speak like years ago when i first moved to hollywood me and ernest when i was born to the conspiracy theory phase of my life but he said that this guy claimed to have talked to like presidents and stuff. He was like a consultant to, you know, presidents and shit. But he had like, you know, a very wide range of alien beliefs and stuff like that. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt. But he said that he had spoke with Marilyn and he believed that Marilyn uh, was killed because um, her and John F. Kennedy were talking about releasing uh, free energy vehicles. They were going to start, they were starting to work with free energy technology, which is, you know, taking the energy out of the air, basically, you know, it's more of, it's, it's a concept, you know, it's like a patented concept, but it's not something we can actually do with technology right now, supposedly. Um, but that was what he said was that he, him and Marilyn were silenced for that, which is like, Interesting. which is, yeah, definitely a, a, a crazy thought, you know, conspiracy, mm-hmm. but 
yeah when i remember when being back like in that headspace back then i was like wow that's kind of believable what do you think (laughs) go ahead oh sorry what do you what do you think jameson well i mean i you know it's it's definitely it's it's one of those difficult situations because you could definitely give weight to both arguments um especially with uh like with all the with all the bad people that were in her life and that she was involved with, I could see a lot of that happening. And so, you know, when it comes to conspiracies, a lot of times I, I try not to delve too far into that stuff because it's easy to get wrapped up in that stuff and fall down that and start connecting things that aren't necessarily there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, you know what I mean? Like, I, I will say this. Uh, there was two things that, uh, two other reasons that um, that kind of came to mind as far as why why the mafia would have had her killed. One was that Hoffa actually wanted revenge on Robert Kennedy because apparently Robert Kennedy was trying to have Hoffa arrested, you know, and brought down, and so that was one reason. Uh, and then the other reason was uh, that they thought um, that she might be a communist sympathizer or friendly with one, and so mm. that all that information in the red the red book could potentially be damaging because Uh, of that. That makes sense, Mm -hmm. because Arthur Miller had to go uh, testify in court with the House Un-American Activities something something. Yep. (laughs) And kills me right now that I can't remember (laughs) what they were called, but like that's why he wrote The Crucible. Um, Also, fun fact, he he wrote The Misfits, which was her last film. Oh, no kidding. That's cool. I think they were, I think he was still married to her when she died or they were separated or something, but yeah. Anyways. (laughs) To your question, I would say, um, you know, I mean, without delving too far into it and and believing, I believe the coroner that uh, worked on her was also part of the, like, he was one of the coroners during the Manson murders. Uh, I think his last name is Noguchi. Um, He was the Los Angeles, like, criminal, like, he was like the big guy for the, the, the uh, examiner, the, the body examiner, uh, mortician, whatever it's called. <laughs> uh, but when I, when I read like his, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I do need to finish, say out one other thing. We, we said, I was telling you guys, in the 1960s or so, it wasn't until the mid-70s that the conspiracy theories started to pop up. So, so really nobody, nobody questioned his autopsy findings uh, until almost 20 years later. Um, it caused so much of a stir that they actually reopened the autopsy and redid an autopsy to see if there could have been foul play if they wouldn't if they didn't find anything 20 years um, later yeah it was like 19 uh, let me see here the date was 19 1982 uh Holy they reviewed wow. the case and same thing they found nothing no no acts of foul play there was a small bruise but it was uh considered um you know, uh, not consistent with the murder. It was just like you know a superficial bruise. Uh, the body. Was and so still yeah, they, but they, but it was enough. They actually caused enough of a stir for them to re-examine the case and to reopen it. And they really were like, yeah, we still haven't found anything that would say that this is you know drugs or shot up or blood or anything yeah. like that. <laughs> did know? they? Now did they just reopen the case file or did they exhume the body? Uh, they didn't re-exhume the body. I think that oh, they just okay. kind of went back like, and re- I don't know how it went exactly. That's a good question. I don't know if they actually, because I, I think that, I mean, she's definitely buried in the cemetery, but I don't know if she was oh, cremated yeah. or not. That was where um, Pat took me on our first date, was to visit her in the cemetery. <laughs> that is so romantic. It, it is, is isn't it? <laughs> 
No, that's cool. That's I've never I've never been to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery or anything like that. Well, she's not buried in the Hollywood Forever. She's buried right, in right. a different one, but it is it's downtown. It's like in the middle of the. Yeah, it's like in the, the middle of like these high rise skyscrapers and stuff. Like there's all all that surrounding it because it's just such an old cemetery. But they're not going to move it. Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Interesting. But yeah, so I guess I would just say that after reading the autopsy reports, after seeing what they said, it, it, I think I think what she did was that she just that that time she just took too many pills and just couldn't couldn't get to the phone fast enough. You know, she did she passed out before you know maybe hit her faster harder than she thought whatever you know she's like i'll wait for a few minutes and then i'll call and that that few minutes just was too much you know um they did have a one of the one of the people uh peter lawford actually testified that he called her and she sounded kind of you know out of it on the phone and he called the house and said you know hey check on her and the housemate the house made did look and she said no she's fine and so so you know what i mean so it, it, it does the story does add up, but it you could you could definitely go down the conspiracy path, and it wouldn't sound like you were crazy. Mm. At least some of the at least some of the conspiracies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's stick with the Kennedy and the mob, and we'll leave the CIA and the alien thing to. We'll leave that on the sideline. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, a trip, yeah. So. What do, what do you guys think? I mean, have you guys ever heard? Have you have you guys heard of all these conspiracies before, or just a couple of them? I've uh, a few of them. Yeah, I'd never really thought about um, just the because I had heard that the one the alien thing that I told you about, and then the, I'd heard uh, or not alien free energy, I guess, but it's close. It's it's a conspiracy, um, but I I didn't really think about just basic knowledge of yeah, like pillow talk, like. Oh yeah, I could take you to Area Fifty One. It's only uh, twenty three minutes from here, or something, you know. They're, like, uh, they're all aliens, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, <laughs> like <laughs> I feel like that—that's very plausible, you know. That yeah. makes sense, sure. you know. Could, or it could even be simple things like, you know, when the president walks around with somebody and he inputs a code into a hallway, you know, like maybe they didn't change codes back then and they were like well maybe we should probably keep an eye on should, these people just get rid well, of it's that not like, it's not always snuff <laughs> them out you know but i feel like they're probably you know very watchful on all these things and when somebody in like marilyn monroe who's treated like a celebrity everywhere you yeah. know like because at that time they just didn't know what to do with it maybe they just got way too relaxed and yeah she found out all kinds of shit she wasn't supposed to find out it's it's yeah. It's interesting that you brought up Jimmy Hoffa too because he kind of disappeared off the face of the planet. Right. Nobody knows true. what happened to him. True. You know, very so, true. Uh, so who knows? Maybe Boss Sam got to him too. You know? Yeah. yeah. We should we should definitely do a episode where we talk about Jimmy Hoffa. Um, there you go. Yeah. We'll just have to tie. So yeah. So Marilyn Monroe, everybody. Very. Even to this day, very cool. still confounding people with her death. Yeah, right. Very cool. Going on our uh, theme of people who uh, died way too soon, uh, I'm going to talk about the lovely and amazing queen of rock and roll, queen of psychedelic soul, the legendary Miss Janis Joplin. Yeah. I I took that quote from Teresa, who we love. If she's listening to this, we love you, Teresa. Uh, our tour guide, Teresa, is obsessed with Janis Joplin. So, 
she's yeah. a nut. She's a nut, For yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, let's just get into it. So, Janice Lynn Joplin was born on January 19th, 1943, in the very conservative town of Port Arthur, Texas. Uh, They are an oil refining town. Uh, I have a quote here from uh, one of her high school friends, and he goes on to describe the town as manicured lawns, Little League Baseball, normal, middle-class-looking type town. Uh, And he says her mother wanted Janice to be what every mother wanted them to be. That was popular, have a date for the prom, and dress nice. Uh, Wear her hair right. And uh, and it became pretty clear in high school that Janice wasn't going to follow that road. So, uh, as she got older, uh, um, so I don't think that women should ever be like reduced to their looks or like their worth be judged on you know how pretty they are but this is like the 1940s and 50s and uh she's in high school and like your looks are kind of everything so she didn't really develop in puberty and she suffered from acne in high school and people (sighs) people really yeah yeah acne god forbid um people really bullied her though back then uh and so she started to rebel uh she would dress in all black and she swore like a sailor which you know women didn't do in the 1950s you know they weren't big on swearing back then but she did find like a small group of like-minded friends and they would make trips to uh louisiana and visit the black music clubs And that's where she would be introduced to jazz and blues for the first time. And uh, her friend uh, quotes, uh, we went from midnight to dawn, prowling the clubs, listening to blues players, jazz players, digging the music and drinking. There you go. So uh, in 1962, she leaves uh, Austin to attend art school at the University of Texas. Uh, so she, she, her friend, uh, Powell St. John has her join his band, the Walla Creek Boys, <laughs> uh, sure. b- because Janice knew all of these country and blues songs, uh, which they played, uh, something really terrible happened to her though at the university of Texas. So, uh, the fr- fraternities would have these like festivals, um, where at this festival, they would nominate a guy from the maternity as the ugliest man. And someone was so cruel to nominate Janice, and she ended up winning. Uh, yeah. And ouch. Uh, her friend... Speaking of Carrie. Yeah, speaking of Carrie, right? Her friend, uh, Powell St. John, says that was the only time he ever saw Janice cry. So uh, the next year, she hitchhikes to San Francisco. She leaves Texas behind. Uh, She finds gigs in coffee shops and bars. And this is where she starts doing drugs for the first time. Uh, Then in 1965, she returns to Port Arthur and tries to get clean for a short time. Uh, Her friend said that she weighed about 87 pounds. She was a total basket case. And she had damn near killed herself. Oh, jeez. Yeah. 
so she tries to get clean for like a short period of time, but in 1966, she ends up moving back to San Francisco. So this is where she start. Uh, she joins a band called Big Brother and the Holding Company. Uh, they were looking for a vocalist, and their manager knew Janice from the University of Texas. And he kind of describes to them, like, oh, I know this girl. Uh, she knows all these country songs, and she's got this great, wonderful voice. Like, you guys just wait. I'm going to go get her and bring her here, and I really think she should join the group. So he goes and he brings Janice in, and they all describe that she was not what they thought she was going to be. They're expecting, like, this beautiful, like, I imagine that they were imagining, like, imagining, like, a Dolly Parton, like, country singer, like, beautiful, curvy, you know, blonde, sparkly person. But uh, they described the way she looked as looking, a uh, scraggly looking girl, like a stray cat. Like, you just went and plucked <laughs> a stray cat out of the alley and brought her in. Uh, but Janice starts singing and the band instantly knew that she was a perfect match for them. Uh, they were like an improvisational uh, jamming type of band. And her bluesy vocals like fit perfectly with their style. And the rest is history, really. So uh, she was still trying to get clean uh, for a while and keep her, uh, you know, drug use under control. That is... Until we get to June 16th, 1967, the summer of love. Yeah. Uh, so Big Brother gets to perform at the Monterey International Pop Festival, which is really cool because uh, that's my hometown, Monterey, California. So nice. Yeah. Uh, and the pop festival is like a big deal. So Mamas and the Papas are there performing like all the big names and so Janis Joplin's 24 years old. She gets up on stage. Like Big Brother's kind of not really known at the time. They've never recorded any albums, you know. They've had a few performances, but this is like the first time they're performing to... It's like their debut. Kind yeah, of. their debut to such a big audience and first time really debuting Janice being with the group. And when she opens her mouth to sing, like everybody is blown away. Uh, in the in the video, you can see Mama Cass in the audience with her jaw completely dropped. Like, <laughs> she's just like That's in awesome. awe of Janice. And because of this performance, she is an overnight sensation. Uh, let me see. I have this quote here. Uh, the Sam Andrew, the guitarist from Big Brother, says, Janice took to fame very well. She was up to it uh, for one thing. She was faster, funnier, and more intelligent by far than most of the people we ran into. So she starts doing these interviews on the Dick Cavett show. And Dick Cavett, he he had a like a late night talk show, and he's in love with Janice. When you see him interviewing her, like he wants her, he loves her so much. He's so intrigued by her. And she just finds him hilarious. And they have this little like back and forth like he's like this total nerd and she's like poking fun at him and like he's in awe of her it's and it works it works really really well so from monterey on though she starts to become kind of a diva 
and it's no longer Big Brother and the Holding or Big Brother and the Holding Company. It's now Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company. You know, and they start to notice that her name gets bigger and bigger on uh, the marquee outside of these venues, and she's outbilling the band. The press loves Janice, and they paid very little attention to the band. So they go in to record their first album together, and it was rough, and they argued through the whole thing, and they're just not ready to really be in the situation where they're in like this sterile type of recording session, like they're a jam band. And so it kind of like doesn't really, you know, work out and they argue a lot. So in 1968, Janice announces that she is leaving Big Brother behind, but they still need to complete their tour. They had to do a few performances knowing that Janice was leaving them behind. Mm. And it was awkward to say the least. (laughs) So in 1969, she uh, forms the Cosmic Blues Band. Now these were people that were like handpicked by Janice now. And she's going to create this amazing band, but she has never led a band before and she struggles really hard with it. Uh, They're constantly changing members. They go through five different drummers. Wow. She poaches Sam Andrews from Big Brother, but he says, like, I was no longer her bandmate, but now I was an employee of Janice. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Uh, And the press is not happy about this. The critics do not like the change. They tell her, or they claim that Janice has abandoned Big Brother, and... This affects her, so she ends up going back to into drugs and drinking uh, very heavily. So she's no longer drinking after the performances that they're doing, but now drinking heavily before the performances, and it starts to affect how she performs. So uh, I have this quote here. Sam Andrews actually says... Uh, If everyone was drinking, she would drink the most in the room. If everyone was doing drugs, she would do the best drugs and the most drugs than anyone in the room. (laughs) So in in March of 1969, while in San Francisco, she has her first overdose. Um, And then that summer in 1969, she performs at Woodstock. Uh, and her manager says that she physically was not in good shape. 1969, she disbands the Cosmic Blues Band. Mm. So in 1970, she attempts to get clean, and she really takes it serious this time. Uh, she's changed. She takes charge of her new band. Full Tilt Tilt Boogie Band. The Full Tilt Boogie Band. So she, she has a new band that uh, she's working with. Uh, She goes on to something called Festival Express, which sounds really cool. So they travel from the US to Canada on this train and it's all of these like famous musicians kind of just like hanging out on this train and they stop and they perform. And she's there uh, with the Grateful Dead who she was friends with prior to this. So she's having a great time traveling on this train it's like snowpiercer but like super cool (laughs) you know uh so she does that which is 
awesome and she's back on top. And so in August of 1970, she decides she's going to go to her high school reunion. And she gets on the Dick Cavett show and she's like, yeah, I'm going to go back and I'm going to show them how successful I am. And she really wants to rub it in their faces. But when she returns to her hometown, the people in the hometown are not thrilled about this. They're very cold to her. Uh, the press actually shows up to her high school reunion to interview her. And you can just see it on her face that she really regrets coming back and acting like a big jerk to everybody. Mm-hmm. And she's very vulnerable at this time. So then we come to October 3rd, 1970. So uh, for a couple months, Janice is in L.A. recording uh, the album Pearl. And during this time, she's staying at a hotel called the Landmark Motor Hotel, uh, which is now currently the Highland Gardens Hotel. Um this is actually a place that we, well, you guys know, but this is a place that we visit on our tour uh, for Hollywood's Haunted. Uh, the nickname for the Landmark Motor Hotel was the Landmine. Um, and that's kind of what like all the cool people called it, you know, and it was known uh, to be very close to Hollywood Boulevard and known to be like in good proximity to the Sunset Strip and also all of the drug dealers. So... For a month up to this point, uh, so, oh, sorry. So a month up to this point, Janice had been working on Pearl. So on October 3rd, 1970, at 1.30 in the afternoon, she's alone in her room as her band records at Sunset Sound, the recording studio, uh, a little ways away on Sunset Boulevard. She's not needed there till much later. So she's just sitting in her room. She's kind of bored, getting antsy. And so she makes a phone call to City Hall in San Francisco, trying to get information uh, about a marriage license. So she's uh, engaged to a man uh, named Seth Morgan, who he's living in San Francisco at the time, uh, at her house, actually. And uh, so uh, she calls to talk, get about uh, information on a marriage license uh for her and Seth who've been dating for a few months most people were really skeptical about the relationship though they were kind of already saw that Seth wasn't as into Janice as she was into him uh John Cook who was her manager at the time uh says Janice said it was different from her previous relationships she describes it as positive uh, they didn't have to go out boogieing every night. They could read the morning paper and talk about current affairs. So she's got this really positive outlook on this relationship. And she's, you know, ready to settle down. But she doesn't get through to City Hall on the phone because, well, it's Saturday and they're not open till Monday. So she, being bored, she decides to make a phone call to her candy man. Bum, dun, dun, dun. Bum. So he agrees to come by the hotel with a little package for her. So at 3.30 p.m., her drug dealer shows up with heroin. Oh, drug dealer? I thought you were talking about the guy that kills you with the hook and stuff. Oh, yeah. No. I was expecting no. just a giant lollipop, actually. Yeah, there's like the lollipop <laughs> He's an killed. actual candy man. Yeah, yeah. well, okay. <laughs> well, no. Uh, so her manager, John Cook, says she had been clean for six months and proud of it. 
up to this point. Uh, she had done it for herself because that's what you have to do. You have to do it for yourself. So unfortunately, her dealer, who usually tests the product beforehand, um, and this, he had not had time to test it. So he's giving her product that he doesn't know, you know, really what's in it. Uh, How strong it is. Yeah. So uh, neither the dealer nor Janice is aware that the heroin is is not uh, or is uncut and it would be up to 50% pure. Yeah. So I have was street heroin is diluted is sorry. Street heroin is diluted less than 3% pure when tested. Uh, Later, it's found that what Janice has is 40% pure. So, yeah. So, okay. So then she calls uh, her fiance, Seth Morgan up in San Francisco and, you know, they previously there had been talk of quitting the business and them settling down, having kids, living together. Uh, and she's really hasn't seen Seth in over a month since she's been in L.A. So it w- he was supposed to fly into L.A. that next day. But as she's on the phone with him, he's like, hey, sorry, change of plans. I've chosen not to come down there at all. And just basically cancels on her last minute. So uh, at 5.30, she does arrive at Sunset Sound uh, to kind of go over what the band is recording that day, which is a song called Buried Alive in the Blues. And the band's been working on it all day, trying to get it right. And so when she arrives, they've got it down. She listens to it. She's super happy with it. And the next day is they're planning to record her vocals supposedly the next day her manager paul rothschild is there and he's telling her this new album's going to be a huge hit um so uh around 11 p.m she calls seth morgan one more time she doesn't get a hold of him instead she gets a hold of her roommate and her roommate's like yeah seth has gone out for the night so her and her band members end up going to Barney's Beanery uh, later that night, which is a restaurant that's still here in L.A. Uh, uh, famously, you know, she drinks her favorite whiskey, which is wild turkey. And at somewhere around 1230 a.m., she returns back to her hotel room, room 105. So uh, she goes to her room alone and she shoots up somewhere around 1230. Uh, Then, you know, before the heroin hits her, you know, she goes to the front desk and she asks for change for the cigarette machine. Uh, She chats with the night manager. She buys a pack of Marlboros and returns back to her room. Uh, She starts undressing. She's down to her like tank top uh, and her underwear. And then the heroin hits her and she lurches forward and passes out face down. She's not discovered till 18 hours later. So the next day when she doesn't show up at the studio, her producer, Paul Rothschild, who had just talked to her and seen her the day before, calls her manager, John Cook. And 
John Cook goes to the Landmark Hotel. He goes by the front desk. He's able to get the key, opens her room, and finds her dead on the floor. There's no question that she is dead. He he says that he touches her uh, and he can feel that there is no spirit left in the body at all. So her time of death is estimated about 1.30 a.m. So they didn't show up till like 9 then? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, just to give you an idea of how prevalent drugs were in L.A. and also the impact of this possible same stash that Janis Joplin had, eight other people die of an almost pure heroin overdose that same weekend. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> wow. So Pearl is released four months later, and it is Janice's best selling album ever. Uh, so if you do visit the Landmark Hotel, uh, there is still a little plaque outside of the door that says, you know, this was where Janice Joplin stayed. Uh, a lot of guests like to write little love notes to her. There's like kind of a makeshift shrine in the walk-in closet of room 105. Um, And uh, the popular, there's another popular podcast called Ghost Town that I was listening to where they did like a whole night where they stayed there and they brought in a psychic and they interviewed the the security guard. And uh, the security guard says that he sees Janice there all the time, that, you know, she's definitely still there. And their psychic definitely says there's a presence, especially in the room. There's some sadness in the room. So it's, I don't know, to me, it's nice to think that maybe Janice is still kind of, you know, around as well. Uh, When I worked at Hard Rock Cafe, which I worked with Jameson there, there was a gentleman who was friends with Janice Joplin and he had a tattoo on his arm that uh, he said Janice had drawn for him. And he would always rent out her uh, her room on her birthday and throw a little birthday party for her in the room. Wow, uh, that's, wow. that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. He's a cool guy. Yeah, and it was cool to see that, you know, working at Hard Rock Cafe, him come in. Because uh, the hotel is right around the corner from where the Hard Rock Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's like right up the street. Yeah. yeah. And that is... The last 24 hours of Janis Joplin and her incredible story. Damn. So, so yeah. I have a question yes. for you. Uh, they were in the middle of recording Pearl, you said, when she died? Uh-huh. But they were able to still release an album, uh, even though she passed away during the recording of it. They yes. were still able to have enough uh, recordings. Well, or yeah, they had been working on it for a whole month up to, up to that point. Uh, from my understanding, the only song that sh- they didn't end up completing was that song that they were working on, which was Buried Alive in the Blues. There, Got it. There is no vocal recording of from Janice. But, so they kept the rest of the track? So oh, I'm not sure. I'm actually not sure if that's on there. But yeah, but yeah she was 27. She is of the, the 27 Club, which I would love to do an episode in the future. We, we definitely should. Where we talk I a agree. little bit about, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and uh, Kurt, Cobain. Kurt Cobain. And yeah. yeah. That'd be cool. That'd be down. Yeah. Oh, man. So that's, that's my story. Here. 
Let's see if uh, let's see, do do the horror baby. Yeah, buried alive in the blues. It's on the album. Okay. Oh, nice. cool. But whether or not it has vocals to it, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't think it does. Uh, it always seemed really cool to me about her is that she just seemed like one of those people that would kind of float around those circles of blues and 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 that kind of area, blues and and, and jazz and gospel and stuff. That she could just kind of be in that element you know that's that's mostly at the time was mostly black entertainers that were you know into that field and mm-hmm. and she seemed to fit in i mean not that they were considered misfits but you know i mean obviously black music at that time blues and jazz was very uh looked down upon and looked as like you know, it was dangerous music and and she really kind of uh well from what you said sounds like she really kind of uh adhered to that she really liked hanging out with those kind of people maybe because she was kind of a freak it seems huh yeah yeah i feel like she had a, a lot to get out an yeah. outcast if you will yeah oh yeah so it was interesting to me that she could just kind of she could be in that society if you will and be so readily accepted like hell yeah come with us you first of all we don't even care what you what color your skin is we just you know you have the talent and the chops and the and the voice to to do this kind of music that we're into and you know, get your ass up on stage and let's do it. You know, so I thought that was cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. And she does. She has like one of those voices too that, like, you know, like it's. I bet seeing someone do that live it must be weird because you're like, this is it's just too good. <laughs> you yeah. Know, like her, yeah, and it's such a it's so distinct as well. Totally. Um. So speaking of blues, um, you guys might know this blues brother. I'm going to be talking to talking to you guys about John Adam Belushi. Um, are you guys fans of John Belushi? Um, sure, absolutely. Blues Brothers. I like Blue. I like the Blues Brothers. I like Animal House. I mean, I like oh, Animal House. Sure. I like you know most of the stuff that he does. I wasn't like a, a giant uh, John Belushi fan, but I mean, he was in everything that I grew up with. You know, yeah. um, he's probably best known as the one of the original members of SNL Saturday night live. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's just seven cast members at the time. Uh, he was actually brought in because Dan Aykroyd wanted him in and Lauren Michaels was like, okay, <laughs> you know, like yeah. they were, they were all just friends. I mean, who says like, no to Dan Aykroyd? Was, yeah. That's, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, also it's like, yeah, if you want Dan Aykroyd, then you better just hire this dude. We should do, Sorry to go off track, but we should do an episode on Dan Aykroyd uh, because he is really into aliens and ghosts and the That's paranormal. True, yeah. And his dad actually wrote several books about That's right, the yeah. paranormal. And then that's what his whole... He's also like really into drinking and his whole brand of Crystal Skull or... What is it? Is the, it yeah, Crystal, Crystal Skull? Skull. Yeah, you're right. Yep. Yeah. You're right. Uh, vodka's all based on that whole, you know, uh, thing about the mayans in there or the incas or whatever aztecs mm. had the crystal skulls and i'll know more information on it when we do the <laughs> podcast um but yeah we should remind me we should do a, a whole ghostbusters maybe no yeah, that's a good thing, one yeah you know Cause, and talk about because that's Mr. what Aykroyd. ghostbusters was supposed to be right it was like an homage to well, his yeah his, his dad and, yeah yeah um but yeah yeah well, i would love to do that stay tuned um, <laughs> uh john belushi was actually supposed to be in ghostbusters uh, if you didn't know that, if you don't know John Belushi. His biggest movies were Animal House, uh, Blues Brothers, 
Um, I, I loved him in National Lampoon's Lemmings. That was like his breakout role. Did you I've guys ever that. see that? Is no. that a movie? Lemmings? It's it's like a it's weird. It's like um, do you ever see like Spinal like... Tap? This is Spinal Sorry, Tap. What was it? Do you ever see This Is Spinal Tap? Oh sure, uh huh. It's kind of in that sense, but it's like Woodstock, so it's like a mockumentary. Like, yeah, so like, so John okay. Belushi plays like a singer, and like you just kind of see like all these different actors go up as portraying different singers. You know, I think someone does like Bob Dylan or something, but it's pretty funny. I think Christopher Guest is in a, on it, who is also the director of This Is Spinal Tap. I think mm-hmm. um, he did all those weird parody. Yeah, waiting too. for Guffman. Waiting and stuff. for Guffman. Yeah. Uh, that yeah so uh, yeah definitely watch that i'm like i said i'm not the biggest belushi fan but i loved that that was hilarious and he does have a lot of really funny characters um i loved hit that that cheeseburger 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 that shit on <laughs> snl oh my god that had me dying sure. as a kid like oh my god um but um the yeah like i said he was brought on because he was a friend of dan Aykroyd, and i think maybe chevy chase too um, but he had started his own little improv troupe when he first started in comedy, and then he was picked up by uh, Second City, and that was when Second City was just starting out. He was literally picked up by the owner, or the creator of Second City, um, and then from that point, they were hired on NBC's Saturday Night Live, but it was also the first year, so it was like the first time producing it. Um you could tell it was definitely like a a rough. Tr- a rough yeah it was they were they weren't exactly sure what it was supposed to be but that's the beauty of the show i guess um but yeah like i said he did a bunch of other movies and then he was um um going to be staying at the chateau marimont where our story uh, kind of begins if you've never been to the chateau marimont it's in um right off of sunset like kind of towards west hollywood i guess i wouldn't know what exact area to call that it's really, what, what it's that, really Doheny nice or something Doheny drive yeah something is, right there yeah. yeah um but yeah really nice area it's chateau marimont's kind of known as the place to go to kind of get away with your shit as a celebrity <laughs> um they really look down upon um uh, people that are going to be like snooping or gossiping and stuff like that like the if celebrity you're... hideout yeah exactly it's definitely a celebrity hideout um it's been that way for a long time and but even nowadays they have a rule that if you're caught like they follow your social media and if you're caught tweeting or something about a celebrity that's staying there you're banned for life <clears throat> um but that oh, wow. i thought that was crazy yeah um, originally, it opened up in 1929. It was uh, a really new, elegant, exclusive apartment building at that time. Um, but due to the high cost of rent, uh, and this was pretty much for right when the Great Depression started, uh, it was then converted into a hotel so it could make some money. Uh, during World War II, it served as an air raid shelter for the residents in the area. Um, huh. But yeah, like I said, it's known for its... Uh, to be able to hide hide your you know your 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 goings on i guess well, yeah <laughs> and like celebrities need privacy too they're just like anybody yeah e- exactly they don't always want to be followed by tmz or you know the 1970s or 80s equivalent to that you know right yeah um it, the, there was a, the reputation to misbehave dates back to the days of the motion picture code. Um, the code specified not only what could and not be shown on screen, but also its expectation of the star's behavior off camera. 
So studios mm. would rent apartments and rooms for the purpose of having a place, a safe place for their star to go crazy, basically. You know, like <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was that was really what it was for. Uh, the famous example of that was Harry Kahn, who was the head of Columbia Pictures at the time. He he would tell he told two of his randiest young stars. I had to, <laughs> to keep that in William Holden and Glenn Ford, and this is in quotes: "If you must get into trouble, do it at the Chateau Marimont," which I think should be the slogan, be their slogan. on the website. Oh, you know? yeah, if seriously. you must get into trouble, do it at the Chateau <laughs> Marimont. Full of a bumper sticker, right? There. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, when we we went by, Pat and I went by and like the we went by to like just take pictures of it and like, you know, I don't know. It was this was like early on this summer. Uh and there was definitely a security guard outside looking at us. But honestly though, if you didn't know where the Chateau Miramont was, you would probably drive by drive it right past it yeah. many 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 times like, also the way it's positioned there's no real way you can like park or hang out it's kind of like at a curve that's going up a very you know? steep hill. yeah really yeah. steep hill like yeah it's not um yeah a lot of a lot of people liked that you know really appreciated mm-hmm. that um uh, so the it was actually designed off of the um, the Chateau Marymount was designed after the place where um, Leonardo da Vinci was actually buried. Um, it's oh. a very yeah, it's a big like castle basically. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's, it, that, that that's kind of why it looks sort of gothic. Um, if you if you kind of but it's it's weird you can't you can't really see it unless you're up in the hills you know when you see it you just see this like lavish entrance and that's kind of and it's really like covered it. by a lot of greenery as well mm-hmm. you know um that a lot of people thought that that was a way to um bring in European guests into Hollywood like as a place for them to stay and feel comfortable hmm. um, which was kind of kind of true um. I always think it's weird when people do that, though, because it's like when you go visit a foreign place, why would you want to see something just like... <laughs> right, yeah. That reminds me of, her. like, The Simpsons, where they go to America Town oh, in, yeah. in Japan. Or, or like, uh, uh, that city, the Thames Town in Shanghai, is that British town. They have, like, police boxes or telephone boxes and stuff, and it's, like, this abandoned city. Because the whole idea of putting a British city in Shanghai was ridiculous and never worked out for people. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. That, that's hilarious. Um, so yeah, the, that's the Chateau Marimont. Um, so Belushi uh, started staying there and he was actually introduced to it by Lauren Michaels, who had stayed there for long periods of time on and off. Um he he actually said i lived it all around in the hotel moving from room to room if i had the money i moved to a larger suite if not i took a smaller one so this is just yeah kind of going off of his ebbing and flowing of his career i guess um but yeah i guess everybody just wanted to stay there because everybody's there too you know these are people celebrities and stuff that are you know people that are high paid that don't have a place to just kind of chill and hang out you know mm-hmm. um John Belushi had been staying at the place uh, earlier that month, earlier in the winter, and he was staying upstairs on the six, uh, number 69, but he ended up leaving because the 
his neighbor would complain about his music and John Belushi being a crazy person. And the, <laughs> then John Belushi would complain about their crying baby in the morning. So they just, <laughs> the, the management was able to just move him to a different area. I'm so glad our crying baby neighbors don't say anything about our crazy music. They better not, yeah. <laughs> Shut that baby up! <laughs> it's like right. almost on a timer, man. Like It's a lot. Yeah, it's, 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 something's going on. Well, that's another episode. What's going on with the crying baby next door? Yeah, why is it still a baby after two years? <laughs> um okay anyways um so yeah so he moved to a different penthouse number 54 um unfortunately he moved from that one too because his wife uh judy who um was visiting his his plate his bungalow i guess at the time walked in and found a quaalude on the floor and was like do you sh- are you sure you want to stay in this one like he had just moved in and that was like already on the floor supposedly yeah. oh yeah or, that must have been yeah, the right, guy right. before me it probably just fell out of his pocket and he's like oh shit i know i was like he, he didn't take it out of her hand and eat it i mean yeah right and that's that's like not a bonus <laughs> well apparently he had like um he was like you know a pretty rambunctious dude right but it's apparently a lot of people were saying that he was very much on the verge of making like another film like another hit like he was actually mm-hmm. writing a lot um well, so he, yeah and he was gonna do that uh Meaning, like, he was in his prime? What's that? Meaning, like, he was in his prime? Uh, Yeah, like, but a lot of people think he he was, you know, because of the, you know, how he died, a lot of people think that that's how, you know, he just always was this crazy, horrible, you know, out-of-control person, which in some cases he kind of was, but there was a, there was more purpose to it. He still was working on trying to do more stuff. Uh, yeah, God, uh, it was uh, like he was just locked in a hotel room for two weeks doing drugs like crazy. Yeah, he, he didn't like yeah go like Howard Hughes or anything. You know, he was he was still doing his thing. You know, I guess. Um, but yeah, like the, when you mentioned Atuk, yeah, he was, he was supposedly supposed to doing that as be well. In that, yeah. Um, so he moves all of his stuff again um, into another uh, spot, and the film he was actually wanted to make was Noble Rot. Uh, it was a romantic comedy about a robbery scheme set in the early years of the California wine industry. Hmm. Um, and in the days after his arrival, um, he would take meetings with writers and executives and they would, he would actually ask uh, his friends like impressions of the scripts. Like he was, he was working really hard, uh, even though, you know, a lot of people think that, he was just doing, you know, drinking and going crazy, but that's what you do afterwards. And also, you're a comedian who's like at the height of your career. You know, I'm sure he was partying all the time, uh, which I'll definitely get to a little bit later. Um, but he was starting to burn out after a while, and his manager Bernie Brillstein uh, noticed that um, the work wasn't work going very well. That he was starting to uh, slow down and just get really distracted. Um, and they know in the basically Bernie found out because Paramount Pictures had received no updates about the film and he had said told Bernie that he had been talking to Paramount back and forth um, which I guess wasn't true so the studio ran out of patience and they cut cut the film and they um, it was actually Michael Eisner who was the uh, Paramount Productions boss um, he actually decided to 
pitch Belushi a brand new idea. Um, so he wasn't completely cutting ties with John Belushi, you know, mm-hmm. he just was figured, you know, we'll just try something new. And it was supposed to be an adaptation of The Joy of Sex, uh, The Joy of Sex, sex. Uh, with Belushi playing a variety of characters representing the range of human sexual experience. Sorry, so that's the movie that he that he was going to pitch to him, or that was the one he was working on that he wasn't this is, like finishing up. This is what Michael Eisner wanted to pitch to him because Noble or uh, yeah, Noble Rot was not happening. What was it called? Uh, the new the Joy of Sex. Yeah, but, but you said Noble Rot. Noble Rot was the romantic Rot. comedy. Yeah, got it. Okay. Yeah. Um. So he's supposed to represent different. Stages yeah, so sex. yeah, Belushi would play a variety of characters representing the range of human sexual experience. That sounds <laughs> fucking weird. That sounds n- like not like <laughs> like not, no offense not in his to range. John Belushi, yeah, but no, like I just imagine that pimple popping scene in Animal House. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like oh, man. <laughs> excitement. Yeah, that's. Well, I was great. thinking like maybe like uh, uh, like Herman's head or something like that, where he's like <laughs> running around. Or uh, uh, what was the other? The, what was that Pixar movie with the emotions there? Uh, Inside, oh, uh, Out. Inside Out. Yeah, I still Inside Out. Like, that. I can see him, yeah, like, that's what I was thinking. Different, you know, emotions of sex or whatever feelings yeah. of sex. That's Be interesting. That's, that's hilarious. That's well, too Could bad. Too bad we didn't get that gem. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys? Do you guys know what Herman's head was? <laughs> I'm kind of old. I think I'm dating myself on this one. Herman. I think. No. I mean. No. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it was like some sitcom that was on in the in the uh, early '90s, late '80s, early '90s. But it was like uh, same thing. You had you had the guy named Herman, and you had his emotions inside his head, and they were all played by different people arguing inside of his head. Oh, um, interesting. So hmm. yeah, uh, the girl, uh, the girl who plays Lisa Simpson, the voice, uh, she was on the show. Oh, Yardley Smith. Oh, crazy. Yeah. She's uh she was like a one of one of uh, Herman's coworkers. That's a trip on the show. That's cool. Yeah. Anyways, I'd like to see her in, like because I've never uh, seen her in anything. She's like, in uh yeah. what is, what was that? We're back. Don't you remember in We're Back with the dinosaurs? Oh, no. oh, She's funny. in Maximum Overdrive. Oh. <laughs> Can I just say? Did you want to see a blender kill somebody? <laughs> oh, awesome. No, I think I remember that maximum overdrive yeah it's a stephen king movie it's like uh, all the all the uh electronics of the world rise up to kill everybody oh okay sounds like stephen king yeah uh what's his name um uh, uh charlie sheen's brother there isn't it emilio, oh, estevez. emilio estevez thank you he the mighty the, ducks the guy emilio <laughs> <laughs> So continue. Um, so yeah, he was uh, gonna be representing characters and the sexual experience, which is really <laughs> awkward and weird. But um, so everybody pretty pretty much started noticing that he was off. It wasn't just his lack of work anymore. It was you know his attention span was gone. He would take mysterious phone calls around the clock. Uh, he was constantly late or just completely gone from meetings and appointments. His hotel room looked like. Uh, an absolute pigsty his he wasn't even talking to people like when they would come over he was just kind of there um and a lot of people said that they saw him in the exact same outfit for like a week um yeah so he just really didn't give a shit i guess um one of the 
um, Al Reinert, who was a filmmaker that was staying there, he said that he remembered seeing John Belushi in the valet area, and he'd said that he would just pat, uh, sorry, he would pace around in the valet area, muttering incomprehensible curses. His pupils as black and dilated as wide open camera lenses. Which is great when a filmmaker makes a, you know, metaphor to his own work, you know, like, mm-hmm. just in case you didn't know, I'm a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so everybody kind of assumed he was using drugs. That was kind of what everybody did. I mean, back then he would devour food and booze um, and all these drugs with, I mean, with, yeah, with gusto, you know, he would. He would do it like because his comedy was, you know, about going too far more, more often than not, you know, very physical and loud and boisterous. And, you know, like this. So when he would go to parties, you know, he would be kind of expected to, to be on to be on and yeah. to be, oh, you're going to do a line. I'm going to do a mound, you know, <laughs> like he would yeah. constantly, he would constantly have to have this. uh superhuman capacity for for everything but it's because yeah. everybody thought of this his, of his like this like as a character you know he um, set that bar too high for himself huh right yeah yeah um he's uh he was very much um he was constantly uh down the the hedonism path i guess he was uh a, a womanizer too i think it was um um Jane Curtin, who said that he, he had zero respect for the females on at the Saturday Night Live staff. Um, I don't know if this was just specifically at this drug point, you know, or that definitely had to be before. He wasn't doing SNL at that time. Um, but yeah, Jane Curtin said specifically that he would um, actually go out of his way to destroy material that was written by a woman. Um, yeah he would yeah Mm. i guess he would purposely say the stuff wrong or say it in a completely normal blank tone you know and obviously he's supposed to say it a different way you know he Mm. would just sabotage the skit um but yeah that just just had to throw that in there um (laughs) but yeah so everybody knew that he was pretty much um wasted and high but it was Hollywood in the eighties, you know, it was expected. It was definitely tolerated, if not encouraged. Um, they, these are stars that generate income for giant conglomerates. So they're as long, that's like why the Chateau Miramont exists in my opinion is Mm -hmm. so people can be like, you know, like just make the movie, you know, (laughs) you can have whatever you want you know just make the film you know like but not concerned about their actual mental state or well-being i think Mm -hmm. that's a this is a common thing unfortunately yeah that's come up in our past uh stories especially that one you told me about with it the the what was it the studio had their own private doctor work on her and they didn't tell her that she was sick oh Oh, uh yeah who was that what's her name i'm sorry i forgot who the actress was and this was my story yeah, I was too. About to say, I was like, "Thank God that wasn't my story," because I can't remember. Oh yeah, her you name. said uh, you said that that, that they refrained from telling her that she had like a like a, kidney failure, cancer or whatever. Who she died. Was... Oh, that's, that's, I can't remember. Too bad I throw my notes away at the end of all of these. <laughs> it wasn't Jane Mansfield, but it was no. uh, yeah. Jean Harlow. Jean Harlow. There Jean you go. Harlow, nice, nice. Yeah. They, they screwed her over big time, huh? That's right. Yeah. yeah. 
so yeah like it was yeah it was that's just kind of how hollywood works and definitely in the 80s there were a lot less uh, guidelines and i mean we all know the 80s was nobody gave a shit was, i mean everyone was on cocaine yeah in the 80s yeah i think that was uh mandatory um yeah. so <laughs> but john belushi was yeah kind of um not on a hot streak either at this time so it was kind of easy to resort to drugs uh his 1981 films continental divide and neighbors were total bombs and the 1979 film uh steven spielberg's 1941 um was was also a bomb he saw a little bit of success with the blues brothers um mostly because of the cult following that it developed later on so they actually um they were able to kind of balance it out with selling concerts and mm-hmm. I, I mean i remember i looked i looked it up to try and find some of the blues brothers music and there's tons of cds of like the anniversary edition the re-release of the director's cut edition mm-hmm. you know like so they obviously sold a lot of those and i i remember i mean even growing up at, when i grew up there was I, my family was all about the blues brothers they had memorabilia and all that other crap that movie still holds up by the way yeah i haven't seen it and since yeah since i was like eight or not yeah, I watched it about six months ago and it's fantastic and i'm gonna yeah. have to check it out um so yeah like his last real hit was actually animal house which was almost four years <laughs> earlier um, also fantastic movie by the way that that is a crazy movie that that one that one's still a good movie yeah still that's, holds up even though it was made in what 1975 or something like that 70 yeah, yeah. Uh, 70 i can't remember i should have written whatever that. awesome movie still hilarious yeah yeah that one that one's that one's actually good yeah i've seen that one recently um but yeah f- he hadn't done anything good in four years which is a long time in hollywood um so he was really worried that his career was on on the outs uh, that was one one reason people thought that he was working so hard and why he was doing drugs uh, to try and cope with that. Um, so he ends up going to a strip club for a little while and he meets... Um, dun, 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 I'm sorry. Did they say what strip club? No. Meeting at a Sunset Strip nightclub. Oh, nightclub. oh, so it wasn't oh, a strip nightclub. nightclub. Oh, strip nightclub. Yeah, Sunset Strip. I mean, what is what is the one on Sunset that's a strip club? Right. It's called Center the, bo- or the Body right? Shop. The Body, body Shop. Body Shop. Yeah. yeah. Good call. Um. Sorry. Don't ask how I know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Um. <laughs> So yeah, while Belushi was trashing his bungalow and himself, people were actually trying to get him better because they noticed that this was going really south. And his wife, Judy, and his uh, best friend, uh, Dan Aykroyd, wanted, really wanted to help him out. So Dan Aykroyd would constantly be at the Chateau Marimont at this point, uh, trying to, you know, kind of bring him out of this without having him to go, you know, cold turkey you know Mm -hmm. he thought you know there was still life in him yet um he was seen uh dan Aykroyd and john belushi were seen at this period of time actually having a mock sword fight in the lobby lounge um (laughs) yeah some people were saying they were using long candles as weapons and that it lasted 30 minutes um (laughs) (laughs) 
that, a half an hour of that. Huh? It's, uh, yeah, there, <laughs> there was a couple different stories on that. Um, at that time, too, uh, Dan Aykroyd was actually working on Ghostbusters. And they were talking um, about having, you know, obviously John Belushi be in it. Um, I think they ended up getting uh, Bill Murray um, afterwards to play that to role. Play that role, yeah. Um, so yeah, he was um, constantly just yeah still locked in the bungalow, even though you know Dan Aykroyd is coming by every now and then. It still really wasn't enough. He did have friend, other friends that were, you know, checking in on him, but not exactly in the super nice, I want you to get better way. Um, they just wanted him to come out and party. Uh, mm. One of those specifically being Robert De Niro, uh, mm. who, if you didn't know or see a picture of Robert De Niro in the 80s, dude loved Coke, man. Oh, my oh, God. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I mean, the stories I read, he obviously loved Coke. But, man, seriously, any picture you see of him in the 80s, he looks like he's, like, on his way to go get some more. Like, like, you, <laughs> like you just stopped him and he's like, okay, yeah, let's finish this up. Let's finish this conversation. <laughs> you, want a, you want an autograph? Okay, cool. <laughs> um, but, yeah, he was um, – he, he and uh, um, Robin Williams, who was actually staying in the Chateau Marimont, would check in on him every now and then. But mostly to do coke. Probably. That, that was yeah. actually definitely their their thing. Um but um he was he was doing coke and heroin, uh John Belushi was at the time. And a lot of people thought like you know, like they would just be disgusting to be around him, but Robert De Niro was like still like, Yeah, yeah, just go throw up real quick and we'll just do some more coke. Uh, <laughs> which was actually one of the stories. Um, oh my god yeah <laughs> i just had sorry i just had major flashbacks of never what? mind never no, mind go ahead. <laughs> wow um so on thursday night march 4th robert de niro is going around town with actor harry dean stanton um oh. and they kept calling john belushi to come out and hang out with him he kept not picking up this was first at dan tana's uh which is an italian restaurant a lot of movie stars apparently go there i've never been i've never even heard of dan tanas because <sighs> we're not movie stars i guess uh, yeah. well okay it's probably changed names to like chris tanas <laughs> don't worry i'll insert left <laughs> um that, so after that they went to on the rocks another exclusive nightclub on the sunset strip um so they were kind of upset that they weren't reaching him so they actually went to the chateau marimont and unfortunately, they found him in quite the awful state. Uh, awful state. Quite the awful state. Uh, <laughs> the living room was in shambles, not sloppy, but actually trashed as if in a rage, like he had just tore the place apart. Um, and worse, a flinty, hard-eyed woman named Kathy was lounging in amidst discarded pizza boxes and wine bottles and dirty laundry. Um... <laughs> Some people claim that um, she actually trashed the place. <laughs> but uh, De Niro didn't uh, like the look of her at all, and he called her trashy later. And he was happy to leave when Belushi suggested that he and Stanton go back to On, on the Rocks and return to the bungalow after the club closed. So they were like, he's like, just leave and come back. You know, I'll, I'll clean up, and it'll, it'll look nice by the time you get back. Um, so De Niro left. Did he say that she looked trashy because she was literally lying in trash? I mean, yeah. I mean, how could you not? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. 
<laughs> when, when I lie in trash, I make trash look good. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Right. He's just gonna trash you. He's just Why like, do you say man, that? That... she has pizza boxes and wine bottles I mean, and that's Kleenex and like, like actually trashy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Oh my god. Yes, she looks trashy. Get her out of here. <laughs> oh man. Um. So De Niro left, and when he returned to the chateau a few hours later, it was on. Uh, it was to his own suite. And this was still with Harry Dean Stanton and a pair of women they met. Uh, that's when he got a phone call from Robin Williams. And the comedian uh, actually ran into De Niro and Stanton at On the Rocks. And they all agreed they should go to Bushy's uh, after Robin Williams uh, set, actually, at the Comedy Store. Uh, which is also on the Sunset Strip. On the phone, De Niro told Williams that he was busy and that he... Uh, should stop by John Belushi's on his own. So Williams did, and like Robert De Niro, he was actually weirded out by the scene still, and did a little coke still, though, and left. <laughs> He's like, oh, this is creepy. I'll stay for three I'll lines. Just, I'll just all do right, some right, coke right, off five this lines. pizza box here. Right, yeah, exactly. Oh my god, there's a woman in this. <laughs> um, so after he left... De Niro came, stopped in bungalow, entering through the sliding glass patio door as <laughs> as a cokehead does. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know if that was necessary or or he's just rehearsing a role. Yeah, uh, I don't know. So he had a few few words with Belushi and then took some of the cocaine that was piled on the living room table and went back to his suite. And this was around <laughs> 3 a.m. Uh, at 8 a.m., a room service waiter delivered wheat toast, jam, and a pot of coffee to Belushi's bungalow. Kathy Smith, the woman whom De Niro had shied away from, signed for the order, had her breakfast, cleaned up the room, especially the drug paraphernalia, checked in on Belushi, who was snoring loudly in bed, and left. A little while later, the producer, um, uh, music producer Derek Power came knocking on the bungalow door while looking for Miles Copeland, who was the manager of the rock trio The Police. Uh, who was himself staying in one of the hotel's bungalows. Not in this one. So he was actually knocking on John Belushi's on door. On the wrong door. Yeah, but uh, nobody answered it. Um, and he figured that out because no one answered it. And then he you know, went and was like, oh, shit, okay. But I was knocking on the wrong door. But yeah, so he never answered it. So who knows what was actually going on inside. Uh, at around noon, a taut spry man was seen walking through the grounds of the hotel and he walked past the swimming pool and for some reason he had a typewriter in in his arms um and a lot of people were noticing um this as you know kind of like oh why is this dude just walk by with a typewriter but also a lot of people knew writers lived in, in the building in the building you know and there was i don't know it was a lot of celebrities so there's always random shit coming by you know going through by the pool so nobody really you know noticed anything um, but then 20 minutes later, a second person came by in a suit and he was running. Um, so nobody, you know, did anything then, but then paramedics showed up and they were definitely moving with purpose and then policemen and then, uh, media started showing up. So people staying at the hotel, um, I actually got this, uh, most of this information from the Hollywood reporter. And this was an article that was, um, they interviewed uh, people that were staying there at the time. Um, so this was actually someone's account. They saw somebody run past them with a typewriter and was like, what the fuck? You know, like, what, what is going on? Um, 
So finally, one of the sunbathers uh, walks into the lobby, which was, you know, super packed, uh, which, which unusually packed, I guess. And they, you know, asked what was going on and they, they were told there has been a slight disturbance. Um, but apparently John Belushi had been discovered in a state of unconsciousness by the man with the typewriter. Um, that was actually his personal trainer and bodyguard, Bill Wallace. Um, Wallace performed CPR on Belushi, was not able to rouse him. Um, and because it was Hollywood, agents mattered more than the cops. So Wallace phoned his uh, manager, Brillstein, uh, whose offices were just down Sunset Boulevard. So he was able to get there pretty much right away. Um, in quotes, Wallace said, I'm having trouble waking John up. Um, hmm. Brillstein thought Belushi might just be playing possum to avoid a meeting he had that day with Paramount executives, <laughs> uh, which is funny because we know that him and Paramount didn't get along. Um, so he told Wallace that he would just send someone over, thinking it wasn't you know real. Uh, Wallace hmm. called again a few minutes later in a more stressed voice, and he said, "There's something really wrong with John." And Brillstein knew, you know, this. He meant. He meant something serious, um, so he told him, "Call paramedics, get him over there." And this is so. This was minutes later after discovering him. Wow! So they definitely didn't call paramedics in time. Uh, fucking Hollywood, man. Yeah. Um. So when he got inside the bungalow, uh, he found um, Wallace crying, still trying to perform mouth to mouth on Belushi, and he's screaming, "You know, get out of here! John's dead." And immediately an ambulance arrives, EMTs assess the comedian's state. Um, they didn't even try to defibrillate him. He was, de he was definitely already gone. Um, they called for the medical examiner, but they saw the needle marks on Belushi's arms and they pretty much knew right away that he had died of an overdose. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, it was really, really sad. Uh, Brillstein left the office and drove to Cedar sinai where he assumed Belushi would be brought for treatment um he warned the staff that a major star had suffered an accident and was on his way and would require immediate care and above all privacy and then he waited for news which was painfully long in coming he paced and smoked his mind racing he imagined that belusi didn't need to come into the er um and that he was taken to another hospital um but he just really wanted to avoid the the news you know he thought mm -hmm. like oh if i just get everything ready he'll arrive and we'll get him back to normal um but then the call came and he got the horrible news that john belushi was dead um he he immediately called dan Aykroyd uh, and told him what had happened and apparently it was no sugar coating just point blank just told him right away because he knew that the story was ready to break that because media found out about it right away you know like he didn't want his wife judy to find out about it through the papers or yeah. television or whatever so he wanted to make sure dan Aykroyd called judy um to make sure that she had that story um and another weird thing that uh people don't realize when uh, belushi died his next door neighbor was uh tony randall and he was living right next door and he didn't hear any of this commotion i guess i don't know if he was still asleep during the whole time um but he came out uh this when the coroner's wagon was was just leaving and then they told him what happened and he was just like what like uh, 
that's that I would probably you know switch. Oh, you mean like his neighbor in the hotel? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Got it. Okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah, he was that's there right. while yeah, unfortunately while Belushi passed away. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it was interesting reading this article too because they talk about um, this the '80s being the pop up of ghost tours. Um, I don't know what exactly it was in the '80s. Um, was the Satanic Panic? Was that 80s? Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's 80s, yeah. yeah. I feel like there was definitely an uptick in um, ghost stories. And but, shows, but too. But also shows and movies, horror movies, were huge sure, in the 80s. Sure, Poltergeist. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, there's, yeah, there's Ghostbusters there's and all that tons, stuff. Yeah. Tons of uh, interest, obviously, in ghosts and spirits and stuff like that. Uh, there was... There was um, um Amityville Horror. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's so they were kind of I don't know the the article kind of da- didn't look uh, too kindly on ghost tours, um. But <laughs> <laughs> which was kind of hilarious that we're doing this. Those bastards. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they called them ghoul tours, um. But apparently that they noticed that in the eighties people started stopping there would be mostly like bands and tour buses or whatever would stop right outside to get a glimpse of the naughty hotel where John Belushi died. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it really is pretty much impossible to get inside. It's, there's one entrance or there's two entrances. There's like a garage ballet area, um, but there's people there all the time, you know, so it's a beautiful, really beautiful spot though. Um a lot of uh, celebrities have stayed there. Uh, like I said, uh, some notable ones that I wanted to mention was uh, uh, Britney Spears stayed there in 2007. This was her, during her public meltdown phase. Um, she was actually temporarily banned from the chateau for smearing her face with food. Disgusting fellow diners. Yeah. yeah Poor Britney. Was, yeah, right? So she was... But it's it's interesting that like the place where you can hide was still like, no, nah, you can't do that here. Yeah, right. Do that in your room. Um, On January 23rd, 2004, photographer Helmut Newton, who uh, lived at the hotel at the time, lost control of his Cadillac and crashed into the driveway driveway wall. Uh, He was actually killed. Really? Um, From that? Yeah, which is, I mean, when you think about like when Dale Earnhardt passed away, you know, that was a very minor crash. uh, Yeah, but he was on a racetrack. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. Yeah. Yeah, but this is a photographer at a place where you get to be an idiot so who knows what he was doing yeah sure. <laughs> no disrespect that's crazy no disrespect yeah it's hilarious <laughs> yeah jesus yeah i don't know how i say that without um um howard hughes would supposedly spy on women at the chateau pool using prism binoculars <laughs> which i i had Good to old ma- howard. i had to mention just because howard hughes is a weirdo but also prism binoculars yeah uh, so he's like, like oh i'm just testing person? these out oh uh, i'm i'm an inventor <laughs> you know i got a plane so... made of wood <laughs> <laughs> Um, there is a commonly denied and non-denied story that Benicio del Toro and Scarlett Johansson hooked up in the elevator at the Chateau Marymount in 2004. Uh-huh. Uh, Lindsay Lohan shacked up at the Chateau in the midst of her first drunk driving scandal. Mm. I had to put that just because it said first well, drunk driving she scandal. Wasn't she banned from the Beverly Hills Hotel right, because yeah. she like never paid? And uh, she like lived there no, for like was, three months? That or? was the uh, Roosevelt Oh, is it the yeah, Roosevelt? Yeah. Oh, okay. That was in my uh, tour uh, spiel, I remember, yeah. 
Yeah, she's she never yeah she never paid her the rest of her bill. I used to yeah, I'll say like oh she's not the only ghost you know. She ghosted the rose. Yeah, bill. Said, okay. Yeah. It's I, <laughs> I say it much better on the tour. I promise. Yeah. Um, in 1955, James Dean supposedly jumped through a window to audition for Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, director <laughs> director Nicholas Ray, who lived in a bungalow at the time, um was actually having an affair with underage Natalie Wood there. Oh. Who we know Natalie Wood did um, not have a great We should do, we yeah. should do a story on Definitely, Natalie Wood, yeah. too. Um, there's also a, a story about Jim Morrison uh, of The Doors. Um, he was <laughs> having a rough time getting out of the building, uh, <laughs> is what they label it as. Uh, but he supposedly jumped off uh, either the roof or a terrace of some kind. Um, but apparently it was, uh, really high up and this was like from a drain pipe. Uh, and no one knows really why he did it, you know, like if he was just trying to avoid press or something, but this is kind of a place like where you're safe to kind of like go in and out, you know? So yeah. most people think he was just high. Uh, but apparently he fell like three floors and he got up and walked it off and oh. <laughs> somebody oh, said wow. that, Oh, that must've been the eighth of his nine lives. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But yeah, yeah, it was a really, really interesting place. Um, the the hauntings, I guess, in that uh, area mostly refer to John Belushi. Um, the most famous one actually comes from uh, the Travel Channel. Um, and this was supposedly one that's been repeated. Um, they say the staff has reported uh, other families and... Um, uh, approaching John Belushi, or I guess hanging out with him. Uh, but the story goes that a family was staying there uh, for a little while in the 90s, and they their son was uh, developed an imaginary friend, and he was always laughing with him, and he called uh, his friend the laughing man, and no one really thought anything of it until they were actually flipping through a book that was like a coffee table book in the lobby. Mm-hmm. And as they're flipping through it, the kid like stops her and she's like, oh, mom, it's the funny man. It's the funny man. And that was John Belushi in the picture. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people say that yeah, they were they were staying in the same bungalow as he was. And that's what they reported. However, a lot of the research that I found on the Chateau Marimont is they kind of don't reveal that information anymore like the if you like people have called to stay there specifically in his room and that's not something they do they do unlike Uh, unlike, so they don't promote it like the janice not not at all even even if you specifically request it uh jean michael jean baptiste the famous artist in the uh, 80s uh wanted to stay there um because he wanted to you know have this like connection or whatever and they actually uh, did not allow it I wonder if they've changed the numbers on the bungalows too. That's true too. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. But if you, know, I never was able to. That number of the bungalow isn't on. Isn't on here. I just know that he stayed in '69 first, then '54, then he moved. Oh. Um, hmm. So yeah, who, who really knows for sure? Or maybe it's out there and I just didn't get that one. Awesome. Well, good. <laughs> Tony Randall knows. Tony Randall, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll ask him. We'll just ask oh, him. Man, well, hilarious. good story. Yeah, that's uh, John Belushi in the Chateau Marimont. Yeah, that's a that's that's a place we should try and stay someday. I can't afford the Chateau Marimont. I can't apparently even apparently afford... it's apparently it's not that expensive. Oh, okay. Um, it's it's like expensive because of where it is, you know. But it's not like you wouldn't expect it 
you'd expect it to be like you know a thousand dollars a night or something you know yeah apparently it's not that great of a place um what it's it's like a nice place but it's like hollywood you know a lot of places don't really get remodeled Uh, yeah it takes away the classic look you know Uh but um in one of the articles that i read they the um when they initially released it i can't remember what newspaper it was but they described it as a you know dank vapid hotel blah 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 and they actually the owners of the hotel sued and they won uh for defamation because they were saying like it's not a shitty hotel you know yeah like, he where he was staying looked shitty because he treated it like shit you know and it yeah. looked it looked that way because he was you know that was like the howard hughes thing you know like it was yeah. it was filthy as fuck you know um so they yeah they had to actually redact that um which is interesting but yeah it's not they say that it's not like a place that's super ritzy you know it's not like polished gold and marble and all this other shit it's just like mm-hmm. a hollywood hideout yeah you were saying it was the okayest uh hotel in hollywood that's funny, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. Uh, Robert De Niro said that he stayed there because it reminded him of New York and there was oh, like okay. a high rise where he could kind of become invisible, yeah. um, which is interesting. Cause yeah, Hollywood's not high up, you know, Hollywood's not, we don't have, we don't I mean, really we have, have tall buildings. We but do, but we're most not... of that's like downtown, you know, and like we're, we're pretty spread out here in Los Angeles. Yeah. But yeah. Very yeah, cool. That's, that's the story. Nice. That was a good one. Yeah. Nice. Um, so what's, what's on the table? What's for next week? So, Patrick, I want you to tell us about the life and death of Sharon Tate. Jameson, I want you to tell us about the Wonderland murders. Wonderland murders. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard of, heard of that story? I have. I know the movie came out about ten years ago about it. Yeah, I never watched. I've never it. seen it, I should, I should but it, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, please tell us about the Wonderland murders, and then right. I am going to tell you a story that's not scary, but definitely kind of an insight into Hollywood uh, and a particular era of Hollywood. I'm going to tell you guys about the Source family. The Source family. Yep. Okay. That's all you get to know because I'm going to tell you next week. Yeah, I don't know. Yep. I've never heard anything about that. Yeah. It, yeah. Right it was a documentary on them that I had watched a couple of years ago, and it's definitely interesting. Um, You know, uh, oh, God, I'm going to shut up because <laughs> I was about we'll to give away too much. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Nice. Well, it's well, been a great night, guys. Thanks for uh, the cool stories. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. Um, just say yeah, your little I'm outro. Can I say it? I want to say it. Do it. Yeah. Where is it? What is it? Outro. Hollywood's haunted. The podcast is a is the collective work of the owners and employees of Hollywood's haunted tours, and is available on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, like, and share, because sharing is scaring. <laughs> For more information on Hollywood's Haunted, visit our website at hollywoodshaunted.com. Yeah! Good episode. See you guys next week. Bye, everybody.